Right, hello, welcome to Real Point Exchange. This is Adam, and today Chris and I have a very special guest joining us. Joining us in the digital studio, so to speak, is Jeff Barber, creator of Blue Planet and the upcoming Blue Planet Recontact. Jeff, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you guys? Doing fine, thanks. I don't get referred to as a special guest very often. It makes me feel special. <laughs> I mean, ever since you smoked me at Noisy Person's card, you'll always be a special guest. Eh, well... That was our special times, but you know what happens at Gen Con, you know, it stays at Gen Con. So. <laughs> That's true. Jeff, I, of course, I first met you at Gen Con, and it was when you were promoting Upwind, and I was fortunate enough to jump into a impromptu game of Upwind after I think one of the game designer workshop panels. Or yeah, I remember that game. Oh yeah, it was a blast, man. We I've got it posted on the podcast, and pretty soon after that, you were gracious enough to do an interview for the Kickstarter and. Here we are again. Well, you're gracious enough to have me. And, you know, before it becomes me just going, Jeff, you're wonderful. Aww. Awesome. <laughs> Jeff, so, Jeff, what's, uh, I guess, where did we put the card in the horse on this one? Do we talk about Blue Planet or do we want to go ahead and jump right into the new iteration of Blue Planet? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a little bit about the game's history to give some context of why we might be doing a new edition. Yeah, let's, let's, give us an elevator pitch, Jeff. It's a hard game to elevator pitch, but uh, and, and and as a result, um, it can sound kind of mundane. It's a wide open sandbox style role playing game. It's hard science fiction, and it is set on Earth's first colony world outside the solar system. So it's first extrasolar colony planet uh, that happens to be a water world, a water world called Poseidon, and it sets up all this social political tension. It has a very kind of frontier wild west feel gold rush style and it's quite intentional um, as there is an unobtainium that is part of the storyline and the conflicts between the original colonists and the newcomer mining corporations and, and all sort of set up the tensions that create the factions for the game and, and where to set your adventures i i did get one uh, elevator pitch from a, a reviewer years ago that i always stuck with me it's Kind of narrow in scope, but it does kind of touch on the highlights. And I always hesitate because I never know if I'm going to get it right, but let me give it a try here. Space Marshal Cowboy and his dolphin sidekick fight eco-crimes in alien Hawaii. Yeah, I like that, man. It fits, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually more about doing the eco-crimes in alien Hawaii than I think it is about um, trying to fight them, uh, at least in, in the modern iteration. But I do think it encapsulates, you know, the, the classic pitch for the game. It kind of gives me a very, like, almost retro pulpy vibe, post-World War II guy with a biplane vibe sort of thing. It definitely has the feel of um, making it on the frontier, and sometimes it's cobbled together regardless of your technology level. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, can totally, I can totally see that. They'd use a biplane on Poseidon if they had one available and no other way to get there. I think the first time I played Blue Planet, which was the, uh, you know, the recontact when you were kind of shopping it a couple, maybe a year or two ago with uh, on RPPR's Patreon. But I did get that whole, uh, th I think I probably said this to you before, but I had a very Thunder in Paradise kind of feel, if you remember that. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, especially that scenario, too. I mean, that was kind of designed to be just that sort of story. So where did you kind of, kind of come up with the concept of Blue Planet? It's funny. Um it was actually a very kind of like workmanlike process. Usually things like this, at least for me, come from sort of moments of inspiration where you're like, aha, then 
um, after the end times had come to Earth and now Mars was on its own. And that's kind of where my headspace was at the time. And that project got tabled for various reasons. And um, I'd been playing a lot of a, of a microprose video game called Subwar 2050. Mm-hmm. I remember that one. Yeah, do you? Uh, it was like mm-hmm. a vector gra- di- vector graphic. It was like drive-through. It was all um, convention-based and, and very much um, still in the infancy of the internet. So the best way in was to make a game. So um, I'm thinking, well, what, what can I make that I, I have the capacity for? And given that I had studied marine biology in college and my first love had always been science fiction and that advice from my English teacher, write what you know, kept going through my head. And then I was driving this submarine around in this video game and I just made a game about an abandoned colony going through sort of a hard time. It all kind of coalesced into this idea for Poseidon and, and the game that would eventually become Blue Planet. So it was really kind of a deliberate decision making as opposed to like a moment of lightning striking. But it seemed to have worked out. Yeah. It sounds like a very a very zen way of uh, deciding on your first game, honestly. Yeah, I, I don't know. Zen? I mean, maybe. I don't think I would consider myself a zen person. It felt it felt deliberate. I guess that's the best way to describe it. It just felt deliberate. Yeah, like everything out of, kind of fit into place, and it made sense based off of your own skill set and the like. That's what I meant. Yeah, for sure. You you start out with Poseidon, and was this what was this uh, first iteration particularly focused on? I mean, you mentioned uh, eco terrorism in your latest one, but like where where was your head at with the colony? Um, well, I really did want to create a, a sandbox game. There was I don't know if you ever heard, but there's a game, an old game. I think it's from the '80s, maybe the early '90s, called Sky Realms of Jeroon. You ever heard I of that game? Don't believe so. Few people have. I'd never heard of it. I, I played it at Gen Con. I was stunned by the world building. It was the first time I'd encountered a game that wasn't an IP of something that had just created this gonzo, detailed, over-the-top, rich setting uh, and made me realize what you could do if you wanted to. And, and I just wanted to make a game like that. The truth is, once I decided on you know what Blue Planet was going to be, I... I never thought it would sell very well. I never thought other people would be that interested in it. So I just wrote it for myself. Like all the decisions I made were based on like what I would like in a game. Like what did I want to play? There wasn't really an intention to go anywhere with it or do anything with it beyond to create it and make it available. So it really wasn't a sandbox intent initially. And in the end, that was actually the only sort of lasting critique we've had of the earliest editions was that no one knew what to do with it. A lot of people would come in saying, this sounds like a cool world. Now, what do, what kind of game should I run? But we didn't really give a lot of advice on that. And we didn't have a default campaign. Like in D&D, you're adventurers. You go into holes in the ground and take the treasure you find. That's a very 90s problem to have, by the way. Yeah. In, in Knights Black Agents, you know, you know specifically you're burnt spies fighting vampires. In uh, even World of Darkness, which was kind of a contemporary, you, you were monsters hiding among society right um we didn't have anything like that you could play street urchins stealing to make to make to to be able to survive you could play corporate executives doing the the ecological raiding thing you could play law enforcement you could play military thriller you could play natives trying to establish a colony you really could play anything and people uh some people actually found that overwhelming and and a bit frustrating and and sort of like i said was one of the only lasting critiques yeah what we've opted to do in the new edition though to to address that issue 
is we're creating a series of campaign archetypes. If you're familiar with a lot of game books from the 90s, you open to the middle and there's like five to ten character archetypes. Like this is the dude you get to play or this is the um, robot that you get to play or this is the monster you get to play and trying to inspire people the kinds of characters that can be in the game. Mm -hmm. We're doing something similar with the campaigns. We're trying to show the kinds of different campaigns that you can play in the game and we're providing all the sort of plot hooks and entree details, uh, locations, the resources, the NPCs that could be part of such a campaign down to some pretty specific references and tools and then allowing those to sort of like jumpstart places to jumpstart your your game. And we're picking sort of the archetypical places that you can enter the, the Blue Planet world. We're hoping that will solve that, that initial lack of direction for campaigns while still keeping a very big and open sandbox perspective. I think that would work pretty well. The Red Sky Charters that you guys have both played in now, that's one of the archetypes. The idea being that you would make your own characters fitting into that guide service and that background in, in harmony. Yeah, okay. uh, that's also kind of what made me think of like the whole like Archer Danger Island sort of thing of like post-war colonialism bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that definitely works really some, well, by the way. Definitely some anti-colonial, like colonial, uh, anti-colonial conflict in the story, and quite intentionally. I got, I got to ask real quick though. What is uh, the from designing the game in the '90s and working on this version now? What, what uh, you've already kind of talked about how you've changed your direction, but what, what else happened in that course of time has affected your approach to game design? Uh, I mean, the industry is completely different. The tools at our disposal are completely different. The way people feel about many people feel about games is totally different. I mean, there's been so many great examples of of games, uh, game evolution, um, make changes in mechanics. I mean, the whole D20 glut had happened. Um, all the things that have come from like Powered by the Apocalypse or Dogs in the Vineyard, all the sort of more narrative um, end of the spectrum, all the really cool designs that have come out of that. Those have all been hugely influential in my game design. I mean, Upwind was largely a, a very narrative, well, entirely a very narrative mechanic system. Oh, yeah. It's a, an entirely different beast than uh, Blue Planet. And while the new Blue Planet is not at all narrative, or I guess I should say could not be considered strictly narrative, it does try to um, flip some of the expectations on their ear a little bit and go from what characters can do, which was really the focus of the earlier versions of Blue Planet's mechanics to who characters are, um, which is also includes what they can do, but it also includes um, their personalities and their relationship to each other and the things that change them over time and, and their connections to the setting. And those are all things that are much more emphasized in the new mechanics that were almost absent from the previous version. Now, Jeff, let me ask, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that the RPG community has become more connected as time's gone on? Could I mean that's a it's a great question. I feel like it'd be hard to answer that objectively because it would be a little bit like asking a fish about water, right? Fair. Just because it's hard for me to remember who I was, and but I do know that the deliberate decisions about the mechanics were made because of games that I had seen more recent games that had mechanics in them that connected characters to other characters or that connected them to their environment through um, either just simple prose descriptions or mechanical elements that gave stakes to those relationships. 
And I wanted to make sure that that was part of the play in Blue Planet as well. I think you did a good job of that. So a lot of the games that we play here at RPX are mainly set on Earth or a, you know, a very similar planet, if anything. I mean, we, we've just, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but we've just recently started dipping our toes back into the world of Dungeons and Dragons. But in the games of Blue Planet that I have played in, the, the planet honestly feels like an extra character at the table. It's a very beautifully uh, described. And from what I've read of the Quick Start Guide that, you can pick up on drive through RPG right now. It's a, it's a very vivid world. Got this untouched gem, I guess you could say, in the solar system that man makes her way to. And then we exploit it a little bit. And then something happens. I can't remember, but they're like we're cut off from Poseidon for a while. Yep. And then we, this particular version and recontact is not just a clever word. Like this is where the people on Earth. And I guess other colonies have reestablished contact with Poseidon and their motives are not so great for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've got the, the broad strokes in place. So just for some context, the, the, the setting hasn't changed between the, isn't changing much between the two editions. We're definitely um, cleaning some things up. We're addressing, you know, it, a lot of the text was written in the nineties. So there's things that are, have just changed and our outlook on them is, is different now. So we're addressing some things like that, um, but the setting was designed intentionally to create a certain kind of tension, socio-political tension around the exploitation of this planet. And if we were to shift it much, then we'd lose all that that tension around which the the sort of conflict in the game is built. So we're not really in that. The title "Recontact" refers to an event in the actual backstory of Blue Planet setting. So the way the, the game is set up, Earth finds a wormhole, travels through the wormhole, establishes a colony of like 5,000 genetically engineered colonists. Then back on Earth, there is a global famine caused by uh, something called a blight of genetic engineering, GMO gone wrong, that just attacks Earth's grain crops and causes global starvation. Fucking Monsanto. So they don't have any resources to, to continue to maintain the colony, right? They're focused on just trying to keep as many people on Earth alive as possible. So there's a 75-year dark technological dark age as all, all that's happening on Earth is, is um, trying to fight the blight. So the colony is just perforce abandoned. About 80 years later, they send another scientific mission through the wormhole expecting to find you know, the colony long gone and just trying to revisit the planet for the first time. But they discover that the colonists have survived and grown into a population of like 80,000 people. And they are now, they consider themselves natives of the planet. They're on like the third or fourth generation, and they consider Poseidon home. So when Earth comes back, they call them the newcomers. And the moment their ship, the first ship returns, they call that recontact. It's just a historical event in the timeline of Poseidon. And because the game has been out of publication for almost 25 years, it seemed like a nice sort of parallel play on words to refer to the new edition as Blue Planet Recontact. So in the story, the recontact still happens and, and the relationships are unchanged, but the title is changed because of the time that's passed since. I think that's a good way of doing it. The thing that drives the setting forward is that post-recontact, they discover this stuff called xenosilicate, which is uh, ore that uh, has some strange properties that allow it to be used as a very effective template in genetic engineering. So effective, in fact, that it can stop telomere degradation and basically stop the aging process. Trouble is, it's on an alien planet, 
far away through a wormhole. And to get it back to Earth, it's very expensive. So uh, only the rich can afford it. And if you can afford, you know, 50 to 100 grand a year in longevity treatments, you can become immortal. Most people on an, on an Earth just crawling out of a global, well, pandemic, but an agricultural pandemic can't. So there's this um, kind of overlying tension between the haves and have nots that sort of is the foundation for the game, both on the planet and on Earth. And that exploitation of Poseidon is happening as these mining corporations come in and just have a gold rush trying to recover all this silicate, otherwise known as Long John. And this is when you get folks like me just singing the Marseillaise while uh, doing my thing. <laughs> that information alone there can offer several different arcs of or directions that you could take play right there. I mean, you could be the natives resisting yeah. or, you know, you could be essentially mercenaries or miners or whatever. It's just going in and, you know, coming from somebody who lives in Appalachia, who's seen strip mines that just watching them come in and just destroy your, the beautiful lush environment. And, you know, you may get a nickel out of it, but you're definitely going to get poisoning and all the other fallout that kind of comes yep. with uh, mining. And that's intentional, right? I mean, any good story has conflicts that people can identify. And we hope that this is one that people can really get behind, especially, I mean, back when we first wrote it, you know, people, some people knew what global warming was, but mostly the scientists and, and climate nerds and kids were just starting to learn about it in colleges. And, and it wasn't on the tip of everybody's tongue like climate change is now. Yeah. My dad still doesn't believe in climate change. Well, there is that problem too. and and. Back then, we actually got criticism for it. If you look at some of the reviews you still find on the internet, people are like, oh, I thought that would be uh, some kind of tree-hugging, environmental-themed game, and, and I wasn't interested at first. And, and, but then I played in a game, or someone told me, no, there's more to it than that, and I just decided to overlook the environmental themes. Well, I mean, they were environmental themes, but, but they were real, and they were applicable, and it wasn't the, the full-on like, intent of the setting. It was just to be one of the many themes. Now, considering the the way we look at environmental degradation and what we've learned in the last 25 years about climate change and ocean acidification and reef die-off and over-harvest, um, all of those things, um, we're just doubling down. We're leaning more into the environmental themes tradition. And, and honestly, it's one of the reasons why I feel like it's worth bringing out a new edition because in some tiny little gamer way, we add our voice to the call for better stewardship of the planet, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't have a voice anywhere that's big enough to call attention to it, except maybe in my little tiny corner of, the, of gamerdom, right? Yeah. Um, I've told my students, as a science teacher, I've told my students you know, my whole my whole career about these things, but but here's another venue I have to to share that need. Now I'm just sitting here kind of running through my mind of my, which side are you on blue planet uh, scenario slash campaign for the future, man. Which side am I on? Yeah, no, I think it's, isn't that the name of the old protest song? Which side are you on or whatever? Which side are you on boys? Which side are you on? Yes, it is. That's cool. You just got me an idea. We should have a stretch goal of somebody writing a environmental (laughs) protest song set on Poseidon. Oh my God. That's awesome. If, if you want somebody to write stuff about uh, workers' exploits and, like, coal mine strike, you've got Adam for the experience and me for the actual writing ability. Well, that would be cool. We just have to change it from coal to long john. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I wouldn't be too, I wouldn't be too much of a, of, a, of a stretch go. I mean, you just get a couple beers in me and I'll sing like a motherfucker. <laughs>
So Jeff, how does a game of Blue Planet work per se? Like, so I've, I've played a little bit of the system. Uh, I don't, I wasn't uh, familiar with the previous iterations, but how does a game of Blue Planet work? What are you rowing? What are you kind of going for with this? Basically, it is skill set plus attribute roll equal to or under on a one, two, or three d ten, depending upon the part of your skill set you're using. The thing that is probably least intuitive in in just the terminology is that the skill sets in um, Blue Planet are not from a list of skills like a lot of other games or like the Planet, but instead are created by the player. Sure, we have examples, and you could use those if you want to, but they are really designed for your specific character. Uh, and there's a couple of intentions behind that. One, it's it's it frees the game up to not be restricted to a skills list, but it also allows for more robust character creation, so you can really be exactly the character you want to be. And we also link those skill sets to sort of different parts of a character's history, so their origins, their backgrounds, their occupation, their the things that they're doing now, their developmental and educational elements, so that you can create skill sets that not only tell you what your character can do, but how they learn to do them, uh, who your character is, and evokes a lot about the character itself. And it's really that simple. All of the mechanics revolve around the you know skill set, attribute, add them together, equal to or less than. Uh, there are bits and pieces that nuance that, right? Um, for example, each skill set is divided into um, general core and specialty. And I'll give the example I always give. You can be a biological scientist as, as your general in a skill set, but then you can be a, a, lab, uh, a lab specialist in your core for that skill set, or then you can be a geneticist or a genetic engineer for your specialty in that set. But it's all, it's all biological sciences, and the idea is that you're showing a progression of increasingly specialized knowledge as you become a geneticist, right? All geneticists know about basic biology. And so for the basic biology stuff, you roll one die. For the lab technician stuff, you roll 2d10. And for the genetic specialist, you roll 3d10. Uh, so it builds in this automatic recognition of a skill set's varying specialty. So can I, can you help me create my minor real quick here? My mm -hmm. Long John minor? Absolutely. All right. All right so I'm thinking of a like native character who okay. all right so he's he does the mining operations so i would suggest backing up um okay. and your character concept is a native miner right mm -hmm. so their origin would be native so you'd want yeah. to create a skill set that had something to do with being born and raised on okay right? so maybe um your general for that would be native son right okay or it could be third generation colonist or it could be grandson of a fisherman, right? But it has it would be something that described your birth and early life on the planet. It's something that ties you to the planet. Right. And then um, for the core of that skill set, maybe it would be Harmony, Harmony Village. That's where you grew up, right? So okay. anything that takes place in Harmony City, like you would know about the people, the places, the events, the history. And then let's say in your early days, you were educated in a um, school sponsored by the newcomers so that you learned um, in a much more, uh, well, in a way that is is sadly parallel to, or potentially sadly parallel to sort of American schools, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so maybe that, that was um, a mistake that your parents made in letting you go to that or 
something along those lines, right? So, but yeah. that was an experience your character had. So um, you now have a origin skill set of Native Son, Harmony Village, Colonial School, and that covers your character till they're like 10 years old or something, right? Okay. And that would be your origin. Then you'd do a similar thing for background. Okay. And then your current occupation, and that might be your minor. Yeah. So, so what ideas would you have for your minor then if you needed a, a general, a core, and a specialty? I think uh, I since the, the minerals underwater, right? So it'd have to be uh, some type of uh, aquatic skill, like yep. diver or something well, like that. All, yeah, all natives have their aquaforms by mm-hmm. ge- genetic design, uh, but this usually requires going much deeper than they can go without special gear. So yep. you'd need like I don't know, maybe something like prospecting. Yeah, mining equipment would deep be water prospecting. Prospector? Yeah, prospecting, deep water prospecting could be the first. It could be your core, sorry, your uh, general, your core could be mining equipment or mining te- equipment technician. Yeah. And, and your specialty could be sub submersible pilot. Okay. Now let's say you want to play an off planet poacher. How okay. do you do that? Uh, that's pretty easy. You would be a newcomer in some form. You could be from the soul anywhere in the soul. So you could be from earth or the moon or from a belt. And uh, you'd have to create a character that had, uh, the, had a, a way to have gotten here, at least if you want the, you know, if you're into verisimilitude in your stories, and then skills that would be associated with hunting and survival on the frontier, probably some technical abilities around equipment, like maybe a pilot or a, a boat captain. Uh, you probably want to have a weapon skill or two to fend off these predators or to shoot the things that you're trying to uh, hunt. And then you also are going to want some social skills, right? Like, are you uh, a charismatic liar or are you just a guy that gets along with everyone, has a way of sort of ingratiating themselves? So maybe you've got a skill set that w- would be a developmental level. Your general would be charismatic uh, uh, gambler. And then um, maybe general, the core for that one would be deceptive liar. And um, maybe the specialty could be lawbreaker, right? Or criminal mastermind. And that would cover all the things associated with like poaching and getting away with it, right? Breaking the laws, figuring ways around customs, um, making underworld contacts, that kind of stuff. And then the players just stretch those, you know, anything that someone can do, like let's go back to my original example, when people kind of understand anything a, a, a biological scientist could reasonably do is covered by that skill set. Um, anything that a lab technician, the general skill set, but anything a lab technician could do by, by any kind of reasonable means would be covered by that core. And then anything a geneticist would understand or be able to do would be covered by that specialty. And as you progress from left to right, you just get more dice in this little yeah. dice pool. Did you also, did you try to sneak a Jimmy Buffett reference in there with me a moment ago with a son of a son of a sailor kind of? Me? No, sorry. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> Unless you want me to, and then I did. Oh, I, I know you 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 meant that the whole time. Just seeing if I was up on my buffet. Right, right, right. Awesome. And uh, I played it before. I've I've seen it in action. It was once once I wrapped my head around it, which it didn't take too long. It like I thought it was kind of intuitive. It was almost like I, I keep comparing it to other games I've encountered something slightly similar to. It kind of reminds me of identities as well, in like. Uh, unknown armies like you know of course i can do calculus i am a you know high school math teacher or, that's exactly you know, it that's exactly the intention on how to use them 
Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else we're missing with the system in general? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very different. Uh, any, you'd have to be a really close study of the uh, second edition mechanics to see the genetic lineage. It's there, um, but you'd have to really kind of dig it out. And then yeah. on top of it is this effort to really make the characters about who they are, not just what they can do. Um, attributes are, are quite a bit different. We had a lot of attributes in the other system. In this game, you've only got four. Mm-hmm. Um, those are subdivided into a cognition, psyche, coordination, and physique. But each of those, you can have up to two focus attributes. So, um, for example, for cognition, you could have savvy or wise or clever. But those also players make up. You can choose from lists, but you can also make them up. And they are just ways to nuance who your character is, right? It's more about describing how they are smart when they do something rather than just are they smart. Uh, And if you can lean into, say, like you pick clever and um, focused as your two focus attributes for cognition, they just give you a little plus one when you do a cognition test or when you add the focus attribute to your skill set for a skill set test. And it's just another way to really nuance the character you're playing. The, the cool thing I like best about the new system is when you've finished making a character, I can promise you no one who ever plays Blue Planet anywhere else in the world will have the same character. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, because you have too much control over um, exactly what you choose the, for your skill sets and for your focus attributes. And unlike, you know, every tiefling warlock really kind of looks like every other tiefling warlock because that's how the game is set up, right? there there's no that's the power build there's no power building here and you get to make exactly the person that you want to be that's awesome you it's almost like you read my mind because i was in there to ask jeff what is the thing you're most proud of about this game (laughs) well that's what i like the most about the way the characters there are there are three other things that are new to that i can touch on really quickly that also feed the intent of trying to make it about who you are please do and those are uh tags tags tracks and ties uh, and they're not unique things. Other games do them, but they are unique to Blue Planet now, or, or, or they are unique to the new edition. Of, uh, but tags are just as they appear in lots of other games. Fate has something called, and they may even call tags. When something happens to you, um, there is a, sort of a, a, an effect. So um, these can happen in character creation. So you decide, oh yeah, I've got a bum knee because of football injury, or I lost a finger to uh, a pseudo eel attack when i was a kid and i have a minus one to dexterous activities now um or maybe i've got a particularly handsome face and i get a plus one to social interactions because i'm just good looking um you can build those kinds of things into your tags but let's say you get shot in play and you're dealing with that injury through the rest of the scene or the rest of the session you've got a tag now of minus two due to injury to everything that you do that's physical right mm-hmm and so those tags are just a way to further nuance, connect mechanical abilities to descriptors for your character. Tracks are, so a lot of games like, well, Call of Cthulhu has the sanity track, right? Yeah. Um, not, not only is that just problematic to, to simply label it sanity and simplify it down to those, those base interpretations, but there are lots of things about people that kind of go up and down. Their relationships with other people, their relationships with organizations, their relationship with their, their own life and how they feel their excitement for something, their dedication to an organization, all these different things, right? No game can cover all of them. So we don't yeah. cover any of them. We ask you to make them up for your campaign and we ask you to make them up for your, for your characters. 
And we provide guidance on how to do that. And so you can choose the examples if you want, or you can make your own. But the idea is that through the course of even a single session, you'll go up and down. So in the game you played, Red Sky Charters, all the characters have a connection to Red Sky Charters organization, yeah. their, their loyalty to it, right? Mm-hmm. And at the top of the scale, they're like blood, sweat, and tears. I'd die for this company. At the bottom of the scale, like, screw it. I'm out. I'm done. Take this job and shove it, right? And so the, through the course of the game, that can go up and down depending on events in the story. And having a, a high loyalty to the company can give you a bonus in certain circumstances, but can yeah. also be a penalty in certain circumstances and vice versa. If you really at on the outs with the company, that can be a, pen, a penalty a lot of the time, or it can be a bonus. So there's this, who am I and how do I relate to things? And it doesn't have to be an organization. It can be your own feelings, right? Am I brave in the moment? Yeah. Um, am, I, am I scared in the moment? Uh, and there's a track that goes up and down in play and you can make tests against changes in that. And there's a description of how inventory works and you can change those in play and, and gain um, another handle on your character for role-playing. And then of course, tracks, that's, that's tracks. Uh, finally, there's ties, which connect yeah. characters to each other and connect them to people in their setting. I mean, how many games have you played where, and they don't have wives or husbands or families or kids um, or jobs? They're just like yeah. this random collection of stats out in the world. Um, <laughs> the idea is that this connects them to real people with real obligations. Uh, people and organizations, right? So maybe it's your job, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's um, an old friend, um, or maybe it's an arch nemesis who's hunting you down, right? But you've got some number of ties to places and people and things in the world, and they're described not only by the relationship, but also your obligation to them. If you've got a family, maybe you have to help provide financial support and emotional care, right? Um, but yeah. if you've got an, an, a nemesis or someone that's tracking, hunting you down, maybe you have to like continually put money into a certain amount of money every month into maintaining false identities so that you're not tracked down, right? And again, those are created by the game master for their campaign and by the players for their characters. So it really tries to flesh out who the people are as much as um, what they can do. I know from the session that I posted for Blue Planet. Uh, Chris and I, our, our characters had a really tight relationship in the beginning, but I found that through play, some of the decisions and all that, and the insistence on arm wrestling and other other things were kind of perhaps frustrating my character some. So that would be, if, if I were, you know, as a player encountering something that would affect my relationship with this person? Does it automatically go down or do I row for that? Or like, how do you make that decision? It just depends on, on how much you want it to, to be a thing. It could be a tag. If it's just real temporary, like pissing you off today, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there's a, um, you just make it a tag minus two to interactions with, uh, Chris's character, um, mm-hmm. or minus two to anything where you're supposed to be cooperating with Chris's character. Okay. And if you wanted it to be, something that was an ongoing element of the story. Like you have this, like, you know, like the classic buddy cop movie where they hate each other at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You could make it a track that described your relationship and you could go up and down in that track and it would give you ben- benefits when you're working together and penalty. Okay. Or you could just make it a tie because you guys were um, cousins, right? Or uncle. I think we served together. We were best friends. Oh, that's right. That was Maggie and Drew. So you, yeah. yes. Um, I was explicitly playing as your best friend who gets on your nerves. So you could put that as you can make that a track easily. I oh, sorry, yeah. not a track, a, a tie, you know, um, and have obligations to each other and consequences when you don't meet those. 
because that's yeah. the other piece of the tie. If you don't meet the familial obligation, you're not supporting them with uh, financially or emotionally, then you, the moderator would decide maybe your spouse decides it's time to split up or mm-hmm. maybe your kids hate you and you've got to now work to regain their trust or what have you. So yeah, it's, it, a lot of it is dependent. We give the scaffolding for those things, but a lot of it is dependent on what the how much the players want to engage with it. Yeah. Like I feel like that that would be something you and I would talk about Adam if we were if we were going to continue playing these characters. Yeah, it's uh it it was it was great and I just loved how the that particular aspect it was on the back of the character sheet. I was I was watching all this stuff that Chris was doing. I was like, I don't know about this, you know. Yeah, like fuck this person. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big part of session zero for the playtest I've done of, of this, of the new mechanics is establishing those things. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on this game. It sounds like I've, I've played it twice and I'm ready for more. And all this stuff that we've talked about today actually is in the quick start guide, which is pay what you want. So it's basically free on drive through RPG and you can, you get that and the characters you guys played and the adventure that you played a while back, not the one you guys played recently, but the one that you, Adam, played yeah. some time ago. Okay. I, I, I remembered seeing that one listed there, but yeah, it's uh, like, I mean, even the quick start guide is like 30 or 40 pages, isn't it? I mean, it's quite it's a... Actually, it's actually 80 pages. 80 pages. I, well, that's why it's I teach a, computer science. Wait, no, what? That uses numbers. That don't sound a, good, Jeff. It's, it's a little book. English. It's a little book in itself. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the kickstarting process. Uh, and in particular... What do you have lined up for Blue Planet? Uh, stretch goals and well, the kickstarting is kind of a trip, actually. When I first learned about it, and I was kind of late to the game, but when I first learned about it, it felt like all those things that you wanted. You know, as a socialist in my heart, it felt like, wow, this is how I can take take something that I think is cool to the people, and if they like it too, then they can make it happen by investing in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that just really appealed to me. Now, of course, having gone through it before, I, I know that it's somebody's, uh, you know, dot com business and it makes a crap ton of money off of other people's work, right? Because of the percentage they take. Oh yeah. It's exploitation. It is. It is. But it feels like a smaller slice of exploitation, I suppose. I do get, I mean, the creators do get a lot more control and they get a lot more say in, in everything. So that's that's really cool. It, it's probably the the way that the game has changed the game the gaming industry has changed most dramatically. I think in the time that I first put out Blue Planet, and then we're doing this edition, and is the, just the the communication tools, but then the financial access that you have for this kind of thing. Back in the day, you you just self published with whatever money you could grab up, or you sold out to somebody that already had the money. This way, you can occasionally make it happen on your own and and i just dig that yeah but the the process itself is simultaneously very simple but also like deceptive because i think kickstarter has moved from this like honest to goodness salt of the earth platform where you know people would spit out an idea and then get some money for it and then create it to this thing where you really have to have some money to put up a kickstarter that looks inviting enough for people to buy into because you got to buy some art and you've got to pay writers if you're not the writer yourself and you've got to have enough stock to really have resources to make it look appealing both in terms of content and stretch goals and production you've got to have well 
friends with podcasts so that you can get on and promote it. <laughs> I, I guess when I first got into Kickstarter, I thought, well, people just go to Kickstarter to find cool stuff. And I think that's true, but I don't think that's where most of your backers come from. So you've really got to go out and hustle and, and try and find ways to bring them to your Kickstarter or put the link in front of them. And that was all stuff that I didn't know when I first said, I'm going to kickstart Upwind. But it was people like you guys that helped me figure all that out. And uh, it's made it a lot easier this time around, sure. Glad to do our part. So what are you thinking on the uh, the, the tiers that you're kind of working with with Blue Planets offhand? So um, in terms of rewards, we are offering a handful of sort of basic ones and then a couple of sort of odd premium ones. The, the basic ones, you can get obviously PDFs and the product is going to be two books, the player's guide and the moderator's guide. And you can get either or or both. So you get PDFs, uh, you can get sets of PDFs, you can get physical books, either or you can get sets of the physical books. So if you're kind of a physical book sort of person and you want both books, that that's going to clock in at about 100 bucks. And they're each 300-page books, full color. So that's 600 full-color pages, plus the stretch goals that come with that, or whatever stretch goals we manage. So it, it's about 50 bucks a book, which for a book that size is a little low these days, actually. Yeah, it's very reasonable. So I hope that is, it's good. It's expensive to print books these days. It's just crazy expensive. And when you layer on shipping on top of that, it just becomes really hard for some people to, to buy them. We're, I'm, I'm glad that we are going to be able to offer, I was kind of insistent on it, and we're going to offer some hardship deals on the, on the PDFs. So if people feel like they really want in, but they just can't find the, the dosh, then there's a, a, that's a lower price point, um, and we're letting people self-select. So I think that's cool. I, it's not a big savings, but you know, hopefully these days every little bit helps. I think my favorite reward level is the book set with naming rights. So if you've looked at any of the Blue Planet books, you'll see there's lots of maps, mm-hmm. and lots of the features on the maps are unnamed. So I thought it'd be cool if people could buy in and name a feature. They could pick like, I want to name an island. I want to see feature. I want to name a current or whatever. And with some caveats to avoid the whole Bodie McBoatface fiasco, <laughs> we're going to let people do that. And I think that'll be super fun. It'll fill up the map and there'll be Easter eggs that people can hunt around for the thing that they named. So I think that, I think that'll be cool. I got to interrupt you right there. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm torn. You had me at two books and I was hoping you were going to say slipcase or something like that. Oh, and that's a slipcase, but that's a stretch goal. Oh, oh but see, now I want to buy something and name it after my children. You can do that. You can totally do that. <laughs> so what, what um, metal band are you going to name? And let, me, let, me, let me back up. Slipcase, we're hoping to emboss it with seafloor texture, like, like it's a three-dimensional map of the seafloor. Oh, it's a bit of Damn. a it's a bit of a stretch in terms of production, but we're talking about. Oh, Jeff, you just took my stimmy from me, son. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, th- I guess the only question I have now is which <laughs> which child do I love the most to name an island after? I'm playing. That. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work that off. I'll work that out off mic. I'll figure something out. You you can get a, you can get a free one. I promise you get a free one. Oh God, that's great! No, it's cool. I apologize for interrupting you. I just Not wanted to tell you it's your I, show. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm a uh, I love the tangibles. I, I keep my RPG books on my bookshelf like a trophy or a badge. Like you know, some people go out and shoot an animal. I just I buy books and that's it. So mm-hmm. you had me at that, but I'm 
these are pretty cool. Uh, what else do you got before I <laughs> went off on my tangent? Well, we've got a donation set, which I think is cool. So you can buy a book set for yourself and get all the other uh, rewards. But then you get a second book set and you will donate it to like a, an after school gaming program or a library or an actual school or other charity organization of your choice. As long as you can provide us with an ad- address and someone to send it to. So mm-hmm. I think that would be super fun. Um, Hell yeah. And then, then there's um, limited numbers of a variety of, of other opportunities. <laughs> I, I, got, I, I read through these and I'm simultaneously like excited to do them, but I'm also feeling like, well, this might be just a little self-indulgent or something. I don't know. <laughs> but one of them is you get uh, a one-hour consultation on your campaign. So you can, we'll get on like Zoom or something. And at that backer level, you, you can tell me about your campaign and I'll help you, I'll help you plot it out or like share some ideas or resources that might be useful. Cause you know, 600 pages is a lot to dig through. And if you have, you know, if you want some consulting services, that's one of the levels. Mm-hmm. There's a, a few, there's a very small handful of online games. And then there's one big dollar one where I'll run you a, a whole campaign online like a five episode campaign for you and your besties. Cool day. So I think that'll be fun too. Mm-hmm. But those are the rewards. Stretch goals are much more sort of inherent to the, to the production itself. Obviously we're, if you've seen some of the art really pleased with the way the book is beginning to look already. And so there's, there's some of that going in and uh, we are a lot of extra art, more maps because the maps are super cool. They're actually made by a professional cartographer who also designs games and does gaming cartography. So for a living, he makes maps. So his maps are awesome, but he's already made the one that's on the Kickstarter page and that's in the, in the, in the um, quick start guide. And we've got him lined up to make a bunch more. Um, the cool thing is he's also going to produce posters. So if people really want to like surround themselves with Poseidon, they're going to be able to do it. But um, one of the stretch goals is more maps. Um, one, uh, our additional, um, campaign archetypes. So the archetypes I was telling you about, we're planning for about eight of them, but we've got another three by industry luminaries that are going to be, um, done if we reach a certain goal, um, new PC types. So there's these PCs have species, um, you could be an unmodified human or some version of a transhuman or a hybrid or a spacer. There's a variety of different genetically engineered forms of human. Um, and so we've got a few more of those built in as a stretch goal. Can I get your guys' honest opinion about something? Yeah. So one of those is very weird or, or could be very weird, especially if you're an eclipse phase fan, but one of, one of the extra uh, C uh, options is going to be a sperm whale. Now, as you know, there's already cetaceans, right? Mm -hmm. And they were uplifted and brought with the colony effort. Well, in the backstory, sperm whales and the other great whales just died out on earth. They went extinct. Um, I mean, they're practically there now, so yeah. it doesn't make much sense that in you know another couple hundred years they'd be gone. So the idea is that this rich, like hyper rich uh, oligarch who had an egomaniacal obsession with cetacean uplift actually um, takes some genetic samples and artificially gestates a a dozen sperm whales and releases them on Poseidon. But they're uplifted now. So you know, in that way that PCs always want to play like the most non-human thing they can find. Mm-hmm. The, those, those are a PC, a PC option. There's only 12 of them. So you can imagine that they're all going to be some sort of like celebrity or sort of strange phenomenon in their world. But the, it is an option we are considering as a stretch goal. Is that just too weird? No. 
I'm I'm thinking of it from like the perspective of an invasive species standpoint. Like th- these sperm whales, sperm whales would be an outside outside context problem from the ecology of the uh, the ocean. There's only twelve of them, but like twelve is enough to cause problems. You know, like look at cats. It's true. Like that that's definitely a very interesting thing to think about, and I think that would be a very interesting way of like looking at it from like just a biological perspective. But are they too weird as PCs? I mean, we've already got orcas. And pilot ah. whales, which are pretty big. Oh, no, no, they're fine. Like, it's just sperm whales themselves are also just really fucking weird animals. Like, once you, get, once you get to a, wh- uh, a whale that size, keep in mind, if they use echolocation around a human, you will literally get yourself concussed to death well, throughout your entire body. That's one of the reasons that they're cool as a PC, right? Like, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, just test them out because, you know, that's a little yeah. weird. Oh, but no, no, I'm it's, into it. in there it. as a stretch goal. It's in there as a stretch <laughs> I, I'm into it. It's just you got to think about it from, like, a storytelling perspective as well. And like, oh, absolutely. That's great fucking storytelling right there. Well, they're going to get, they're going to, you know, they may be outside context problem, but they're still a snack for many of the things that live on Poseidon. So, Oh, I'm sure it's not like they're immune. Yeah. But they will be famous, right. In a way that like nothing, nothing and no one ever has been before um, because there's only 12 of their entire species. So that would be really interesting to, have yeah. them as a PC in your group because everywhere you went, they would be a complication. How would you deal with that genetic bottleneck? Well, with genetic engineering scale, they could probably make changes that, you know, they have the template. They could right. essentially make unrelated versions using the same base. Fair, and fair. Clean, clean, out, clean out any of the things that would be recessive problems. But yeah, I mean, just be a strange PC to play. And it would, you know, <laughs> not everyone's going to want to do it. Yeah. Uh, but Oh yeah, like, all these things I'm bringing up are like things I would do if I'm running a Blue Planet campaign. Just like, oh yeah, you're a sperm whale. That's fucking awesome. Here's all the bullshit you have to do. Right, with. right, absolutely. That's kind of one thing to make interesting. And of course, you don't have to play them if you don't want to. It's just a thing that would be a resource. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Well, I personally think it's awesome. I just see the, the game go in a totally different direction. I mean, we talked about playing a bunch of bards and Dungeons and Dragons and saying we're going on tour. <laughs> I can see, you know, we're, we're a pot of whales in one Blue Planet game. I still want to run the punk band D&D game. <laughs> oh, but that's a pretty cool idea, man. And there's a bunch of other stretch goals, too. There's a one called the Station Trio. So there's three different locations that are all stations of some kind, like an underwater station, an orbital station, a station on um, one of the moons um, that just have not really been dealt with in the original books. And it just would be cool to provide them as places for... Um, adventures or encounters to take place just more mm-hmm. world building and set dressing more art the um, slipcase we were talking about we're going to get logo designs for all of the geo corporate logos It'd be pretty cool a whole new gazetteer section called the outback the book is designed the setting parts of the book are designed in the, are divided into maybe five or six different regions of the planet but they're all in the same hemisphere and the back side of the planet has always been left open for whatever people wanted so we thought a neat stretch goal would be not to detail it because people still like having the unknown and room to do what they want with their games, but to provide some sort of jumping off points and some places, uh, specific like landmarks of interest mm-hmm. in, in the outback, as it's called. Perhaps one of the more interesting or compelling for people is one called a wormhole, which gives insight to the backstory of the Blue Planet setting that, was n- that we never got in the first line. Um, we'd always had this overarching storyline that explains why Poseidon is like it is, why it's got this ecology that is 
so ramped up and why the DNA is the same as on Earth and why there's an indication that things aren't as they seem. But we give some background of it in the original book, but we never give the sort of impetus behind that background. And so one of the stretch goals is to provide that in advance with the books as a way for moderators to incorporate that into their games. Oh, interesting. One kind of a high dollar stretch goal is uh, an online scientific archive uh, of articles on oceanography, uh, marine biology, biological, just a curated website that kind of brings all these different resources together so that GMs who don't know much about that stuff can, can maybe educate themselves or players who want to learn more can go in and see what the real world has to say about oceanography and, and the future of the oceans and climate change and those sorts of things. Latest well, in xenobiology. If you need somebody to talk about evolutionary theory, I'm your man. There you go. I always it's one of my favorite topics, especially in um, not only in just ecology in general, but in terms of world building. That's oh often my where my where my brain starts. It's so fascinating, right? Like it's just so cool. Like just thinking about like, okay, so this is how this is how the world works. This is how these food webs are are distributed. Where does that come from? Well, I think it's how you build realistic science fiction worlds. Is if you oh, consider sure. the ecology and the evolution. I'm just sitting here thinking how Chris contributes intellectual conversation. I'm offering to sing for a beer. So, hey, you know they don't they aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> so there's a a couple of apps that um like web apps that are that we're thinking about that are sort of in game. So as in game resources, one of them is the Poseidon Earth Date Synchronizer, right? So you could go and put a, a an Earth date in or an Earth time in, and it would tell you what time it was on Poseidon and vice versa. Because Poseidon has a, um, a much longer year and a 30-hour day. Uh, so almost instantaneously, you can't keep track of what time it is back on Earth. And it doesn't usually matter, but it feels like a fun in-game. Like it rarely comes up in-game, right? But it yeah. does feel like a fun sort of in-game evocative tool um, yeah. that reminds you that you're not, you know, you're, you're not in Kansas anymore. I 100% advocate for that. Um, and then the other uh, web, web app tool, whatever is the economy is uh, sort of marked with corporate script. So it's basically exchanging stock as cash between the different incorporate nations. So each nation has its own, like the old-fashioned company script. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm in one company town and I have, if I go to another town, it's because it's not that company. And so again, it doesn't really play up that much in the game if you don't want it to. It's not necessary to address that, but we thought it'd be fun to have a little exchange rate generator that would change day to day so that your players, like, they made 100000 on this job, and then they go to this other town. Oh, it's only 75000 right? And then we may, maybe if they wait tomorrow, it'll be up again, and they can go to town and sell it, right? So just a, a fun little trope, tropey like tool for yeah. giving some context to the oppression of capitalism. You got me thinking of the company store now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That could be very Casablanca, too. Okay, so we got the company script, which company store I ties in with my co-mining theme that I've kind of yep. got going through my head. That's, that, that was not accidental. <laughs> so is there, was there any other stretch scripts you'd like to nope, mention? That, that's, that's what we've got that'll go up with. You know, that that's, takes us out to, to be probably beyond where we're going to fund. Um, and if, if somehow we are lucky and fund beyond that, we're going to have to mm -hmm. scramble. Jeff, I appreciate you coming by and talking with us about this. Anytime. I love you guys. It's great to have you on, man. We, we love talking to you. So, Jeff, real quick, obviously we're going to include the links to the show here, but where can everybody find you out on the World Wide Web? Well, hopefully right now they're finding us on Plug Plug. Um, 
Kickstarter. Yeah. But I'm on Biohazard Jeff on Twitter is probably the most direct way to get a hold of me. You can email us uh, through the website, uh, biohazardgames.us. Uh, and all that contact info is also on the Kickstarter page. Well, best of luck, man. And I'm looking forward to getting my two book set with a beautiful slip case. <laughs> I look forward to seeing Lake R or Tridge Kalesa at some yeah, point let's, on the map. Yeah, let's just, let's just fund first. That'll be great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Jeff, thanks again for showing up, man. We definitely appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Well, and to all you tuning in, thank you so much for checking us out. You can catch us on, you know, the internet at www.realpointexchange.com. We are also on Facebook at, uh, you know, facebook.com slash realpointexchange. And we are also on Twitter at rpexchange. And if you like what you're hearing and you'd like to, you know, help us keep the lights on, so to speak, we also are on Patreon at realpointexchange or patreon.com slash realpointexchange. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, we'll see you all later. Bye. We definitely just threw. Thank you.